Well, good morning, church. Recently, I was on a plane uh, with, with Alan Dunham, actually, and he wouldn't let me have the window seat, so I just uh, I leaned over anyway, and as you're climbing up, you know, you can kind of see the details you know, of Eau Claire as you're leaving the Eau Claire airport, and as you get higher and higher up, 20,000 feet, 30,000 feet, the amount of details you could see just minutes ago are diminished. You can't see much anymore, but what you can see as you're climbing up into the sky is kind of the, the plots of land. You can't tell what's on the land. You can barely see the houses. You can't tell if it's a dairy farm or if they're growing corn, but you can kind of see those square fields, especially as you go over rural states as you're flying. And as you start getting closer and closer then to descending into the city of destination, you begin to see some more of those details again. Some more of that land in the neighborhood, maybe some more details of those farms you're going over, and then the neighborhoods with the rows of houses and the streets and the streetlights, and then the skyline, and then the airport, and you're in, right? We get a big 20,000, 30,000 foot view, and then slowly you're going back down. Well, for the next 11 weeks, we're going to be studying the book of Isaiah, mostly doing it from up in the air. 20,000 feet. 30,000 feet. What I mean is we're not going to be going verse by verse through the entire book of Isaiah. But for mostly, we're going to be at 10,000 feet or 20,000 feet looking at the boundaries of the passage, boundaries of the book, the big ideas, the big themes. Now, there is a time for us as a church, as Christians, to look at the, the details of every single verse in the Bible, right? We, we went through Colossians in 16 weeks. We're still working our way through Acts and, and the gospel of Mark, but Today, we're going to zoom out, begin our journey of zooming out and looking at bigger chunks of the Bible. Isaiah is 66 chapters long. It's a mammoth of a book, and if you've ever tried to read Isaiah, you've probably gifted about chapter 7 or 8, and then all of a sudden you have a lot of questions and you're not finding the answers. Right? Who is speaking here? What's historically going on? Why is there so much poetry? Why am I reading this? Questions like that. And it can be very hard to grasp, and there's so many memorable verses here, but to get the big idea of the book of Isaiah is only going to help us get more into the verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So we're going to have the 30,000 foot view of Isaiah. Now the other analogy that might be helpful for you is to say that in this series in Isaiah, we're going to be looking at the, at the forest of the book and not each individual tree. We're going to get a scan of the entire book, and today especially, we're going to preach an overview of the entire book of Isaiah, 66 chapters. Now, we will look at one small text in here, but mostly we're going to look at the major themes of the entire book to kind of have a roadmap as we work our way starting next Sunday in 10 weeks from chapters 1 through 66. If you had a Bible inside of the, if you have bulletin, sorry, inside your bulletin is this little card here. Uh, I want you to pull it out. Isaiah's sermon schedule. I want you to stick it in in your Bible, or somewhere where you're going to be every day this week, because I would want to ask you to read the entire text before next Sunday. So before next Sunday on June 13th, please read up through chapter 5. Again, if we're not going to be going through every detail of the text, it would be great for you to kind of read it beforehand and follow along that way. So by August 15th, uh, 10 weeks from now, you will have read 66 chapters of Isaiah. It's pretty big, but it's doable. It'll only help us be better hearers of the Word of God. So stick that somewhere. If you lose some, there's some out in the ministry table in the, in the lobby. But first, I want to, to us to look at chapter 1 of Isaiah. Read a couple of verses to understand why Isaiah is writing 
this book. And to be honest with you, it's not a very encouraging reason. We read here that God gives Isaiah a vision because God has had his people turn their backs on him. uh, People of Israel and Judah have turned their backs towards God and have trusted in other things besides him. So he sends Isaiah to be the mouthpiece, the prophet, the messenger, the preacher to the kingdom of Judah. Chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, God mourns as he says this. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared up and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. This is not a good introduction to a book. God is sending the prophet Isaiah to speak to the people of God, for they have resisted God. They are children of God, and yet they are acting like spiritual orphans of God. They are servants of God, and yet they ignore the commands of God. So Isaiah is sent by God to wake the people up, open their eyes to see God. Now, to be more specific, there's a lot going on historically. This is happening around 700 B.C., so about 2,700 years ago. The people of God split into two kingdoms. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And God is sending Isaiah to prophesy to the southern kingdom, Judah, because Judah has taken their eyes off of God into other nations. There's this other nation called Assyria. Big, mean, evil country. Pagan gods like to conquer enemies, and they're attacking Israel. And they're working their way down to Judah. And what Judah did was instead of trusting that God was going to take care of his people, they then partnered up with Assyria, their enemy who's killing Israel. They made a political ally out of someone they should have never made an ally with instead of trusting in God. So Judah sided with an enemy of God because they thought the enemy of God was actually stronger than God himself. We'll learn more about this when we get to chapter 7 of Isaiah, but Judah turned to other nations like Assyria to put their trust in rather than God. So I want you to imagine just the small kingdom of Judah. Here they are, minding their own business, raising their kids, working out in the farms. They begin to hear the battles going on up north. They begin to hear that Assyria is coming around to surround them, and in that moment they can say, I can trust God, but I can't see God. I can't see this invisible God. He he spoke to my fathers, spoke to my grandfather, but I don't see this God. Should I trust him? Or, man, I I can trust in Assyria, turn them away from us, and join them, and we'll be good to go. We'll be safe and secure. My kids will be fine. They chose the safer, visible option rather than trusting in God. So in this sin, in this historical circumstance, God sent Isaiah to see that he is the only one who can be fully trusted, who can take care of them. Assyria can't, eventually Assyria is going to crumble, 
But God is faithful and God will never crumble. Now some of this might seem a bit boring in old history to you, right? Judah, no longer a kingdom. Assyria has been gone for thousands of years. Isaiah has been dead for a long time. And yet the issue of trusting in God as more important than anything else is just as applicable and prevalent and important now as it was in 700 B.C. When Isaiah said this, it mattered to Judah. And it matters to us. And what I love about the Bible, even this Old Testament stuff that sometimes we get a little complicated in, it was written for us too. Because when your life your life at some point might change in an instant. You might get a phone call that someone you love has died. You might lose that job or get that cancer. Or your child may have given up the faith. In those moments when you come to this knowledge, will you trust in God? When you are feeling unsatisfied or sad or lonely or like something is missing in your life, what will you turn to? What will you trust in? Will you trust in God more than anything else? Or will you choose money or pleasures or sex or drinking just to get you by? Will those things become your trust and reliance, or will God? Because you may not have the enemy of Assyria pointing its spears at you, but you have sin and stress and anxiety and bad news, and it's coming at you, and who are you going to trust when it comes? And the good news for us sinners is that when we do choose the wrong thing to trust in, God is there with open and forgiving arms. Because we will mess up. But the good news is the God of the Bible is the God who saves sinners. Sinners who rebel against Him and trust in other things other than God. Who trust in things that God said, don't trust in. And even when we do that, God still receives us as His children. He saves us. And this entire book of Isaiah, though it's long and complicated and deep, is fundamentally a book describing why God is worthy of all of our trust. In a moment, we're going to read from uh, chapter 54, but I want to first give you a main point of the entire book of Isaiah, and this main point is also the main point of the passage we're going to be in in 54 today. I chose chapter 54 today um, because I think it gives uh, what we call like a microcosm, it gives a a small view of what the entire book is about. It's a good summary. But here's the main point of the entire book of Isaiah. There is no greater choice than choosing to trust in the Lord. For He alone is King, He alone is the saving servant, and He alone is the conqueror who wins in the end. That is what Isaiah is about. Trust in God. Why? Because He's King, He's servant, and he's conqueror. That's the 30,000 foot view of Isaiah. That's the scan of the forest. So when you ask someone, you know, have you seen this movie? Have you read this book? And they say, no, what's it about? You don't tell them all the details. You don't tell them the plot twist at the end unless you're a terrible friend. You just tell them the 30 second brief. That's what Isaiah is. Here's the idea of what Isaiah is about. So when you go to lunch and your waitress asks you this question, which she probably will, that's your answer about what Isaiah is about. So we're flying at 30,000 feet over the book of Isaiah. 
And Isaiah is screaming to us, trust in the Lord, and he gives you three reasons why. Because God is king, God is servant, and God is conqueror. I'll put this on the screen for you so you can follow along. In the first 37 chapters, we see God king. Then the next 17 chapters, he's the servant. And the last 10, he's the conqueror. So to help us with this, I want you to picture Isaiah as a painter. And God has commissioned Isaiah to paint a portrait of God. A portrait that maybe displays who God is and why God should be trusted. So Isaiah ends up painting three portraits of God that all go together on a wall. Kind of like a mural. The first portrait he paints of God is in the first 37 chapters, and he paints that God is king. God is king. That God rules over everything, that he is sovereign, that he is holy, that he will judge those who don't bow their knee to him. That's the first portrait. God is king. But the second portrait, chapters 38 to 55, God paints the portrait that God is, or Isaiah paints the portrait that God is the saving servant. The same God who is king is also the one who's willing to come and lay down his life and love and forgive and display mercy and compassion to those who are sinning and those who are hurt, that God will save sinners. He's a servant laying down everything for us. But the third portrait we see, Isaiah paints in chapters 56 to 66, is that God is the conqueror conqueror, that he will win in the end, that he will have the last word, that he will redeem all creation and wipe away all sin and death and pain, and he will overpower all the enemies and bring his friends and family into an eternal kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. This is our God, king, servant, and conqueror. And Isaiah in 700 BC is pointing Judah to these portraits of God. And yet he's doing it for us as well today. And we even can have a clearer understanding of this than Isaiah and the people of Judah. Why? Because we are on this side of the incarnation of Jesus. Judah in 700 BC was still waiting for another 700 years for the Messiah Jesus to come in and fulfill these things. Now we're all still waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. But we are on this side. We have seen that Jesus has come as our servant, that he is king, that he was thrown, he was exalted and put on the right side of God the Father. So we are even on this father's side, so we have so much more scripture to understand this glorious book of Isaiah. But Isaiah wants you to know that he is king, he is servant, and he is conqueror. And he wants to ask you the same question he asked his people in 700 B.C., Will you trust in this God? And in reality, who can compete with this God? Because he's not just a king who commands and governs and sits on a throne and writes out rules. He's not just sovereign. And he's not just a God who wipes away our sin and forgives us and receives us with love. And he's not just a God who's going to conquer everything, get rid of all of our problems on earth, and usher us into the kingdom of peace. He's all three of those together. And yet we bow our knee to lesser gods every single day of our lives. Little gods, little sins, little idols that are less than a fraction of a percent as strong or powerful or beautiful as God. 
this morning as we introduce ourselves to Isaiah, I want us to primarily study from chapter 54. If you have a Bible, open up to chapter 54 of Isaiah. If you're using one of the Bibles under your seat or in the pew, it's on page 614. We're going to be in Isaiah 54, verses 4 through 17, where we're going to see all three of the themes in this one text. This is the word of the Lord. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she's cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and your walls of precious stones. And all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it's not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose, I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes that we may see how glorious and beautiful you are. Spirit, sanctify us. Amen. These verses in Isaiah 54 are a good summary of the portraits that Isaiah is painting. And I want to look at each one of them very briefly. And then next week we'll jump into chapter 1. But the first portrait we need to see of God is that God is king. That he is the king that reigns over the earth. Isaiah describes describes God as the Lord of hosts and then the God of the whole earth in verse 5. These phrases reveal the absolute power and sovereignty of God, that there is no one else on the playing field of God. There's no one who can compete with God in strength or wisdom or power. He's the Lord of hosts. That means He's Lord over every single thing that exists Anything that you see and all the things that you can see, God is the Lord of them. His lordship, his reign is over the entire cosmos. 
There's not one inch on the universe where God does not point out and say, that's mine. And in verses 9 and 10, God speaks about how he is the one who brought the flood in the times of Noah. He is the one who caused the earth to flood back in Genesis. And yet he is also the one who commands the flowers or the, the, the waters to not cover the earth again. He commands waters to flood and waters to be restrained. He's the one who commands mountains to tumble. He's the one who removes hills. There's not one thing in all of creation, no matter how big or tall, how old it is, how long it's been there, how vast it is, that God is not over and sovereign over. He's reigning over every single thing in all of creation. And because he is king, because he is authority, he has the power and the right to execute judgment against anyone or anything that goes against his decrees as king. And in verse 7, he alludes to the fact that he has deserted or judged his own people for their sin. And we're going to see this a lot in Isaiah, the judgment of God. Because God is king, he has commands and decrees. And when people, his people, or the nations rebel against the king, the king acts and the king judges. He alone sets the law and he enforces the law. These are just a few of the proofs here in chapter 54 of the kingship of God. And especially in the first 37 chapters, Isaiah almost has the goal of overwhelming us with how big and holy and strong this God is. He's sovereign. He's over all things. And all things happen because he is king. And there are no surprises to him. Every single thing that happens in your life, in our world, you read about in the news, everything happens and God is working in it, overseeing it, or using it for his glory. There's not one thing hidden from God or hidden from the purposes of God. And we often, we often think that parts of our lives happen without God knowing they're happening. As if we have some sin or we have some traumatic event that's happened to us and we assume that God is unaware or God can't see. We know that on paper, right, God is ruling, he's the king, but we forget that he sees even me in this moment or during this thing. It's a lot like my son Haddon. Haddon assumes that if he closes his eyes and covers his eyes with his hands, that I can't see him. We may play hide and seek, and he will jump on the ground, put a blanket over him, and he assumes that I can't see that massive mass on the ground in my living room because he has his hands over his eyes and a blanket over him. He thinks if you can't see me, I can't see you, and vice versa. And we live our lives, if that's true, with God, as if we have found in our lives the one square foot of real estate that God can't see, as if we are a blind spot to God. So we keep sinning as if God can't see that. Or this complicated, messy, traumatic experience happened to me, and God can't see me. I must be in his blind spot. As if we are the one alone. But friends, this God is king over the entire earth and there's not one inch of real estate that he does not see 
or working or oversee. And that should cause us to tremble. That should cause us to say no to sin because when we sin, God clearly sees it and He's an all-holy God. But also, we should be in awe of Him that He can command the galaxies and the mountains and the floodwaters. That is our God, the King of the earth. So He does see me. No matter what happens to me, God is there and God is involved. And because He is there and He's King over the earth, you should trust Him. If there's not one square inch of real estate that He's not overseeing, then why not trust Him? If there's not a drop of rain that doesn't fall outside of His command, then you can trust Him in the flood. So if you lose your job, or you get cancer, or your child runs away from the faith, you should grieve, you should feel sad, but you should trust that God is sovereign and reigning even over the things that grieve us. God is over every inch and thing and circumstance and event, and He alone is like that. There is no leader or president or earthly king who commands rain or knows all problems or upholds the solar system, but our God, He is that leader. He is our king. He's trustworthy. As a kid, my, my parents would take us on many road trips. We'd go down to Florida. We'd drive to a grandparents' house for Christmas. And oftentimes, we'd go in the middle of the night so the kids could sleep through the night. And I remember sometimes driving north for Christmas, you know, 2 or 3 a.m., I wake up and I just see snow just coming down on the windshield. And never once, you know, as a 6-year-old or an 8-year-old, did I ever worry about us crashing. Do you know why? Because my dad was driving us. And though the roads were slick and he could barely see out the windshield, my dad was driving us and I was going to be okay. That's how we should be with God our King. That at times the roads of life are slick and the snow is falling and it's hard to see out the dash. Yet God is driving. God is King. Even over the slick roads. But the second portrait that Isaiah wants us to see of God is that God is the servant. The servant. Now, Isaiah focuses this mostly on chapters 38 to 55, but there's glimmers of it everywhere. So we want to see that God is holy, He's reign over all things, He's supreme, and yet this same God is the one who's coming to lay down His life for sinners like you and me. Isaiah prophesies that God the King will send His servant to come and redeem sinful people, to seek and save the lost. The people who have rejected God's face, God still pursues and seeks out. We see this in our passage in chapter 54. Look again at verses 5 to 8. For your maker, that means God, is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, He is called. For the Lord has called you, like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she's cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. 
God describes himself as the people of Judah's husband, that he loves his people as a husband loves his wife. And in verse 6 and 7, he talks about the distance that sin brought before them, that their intimacy, their relationship, their marriage as God and the people of God became, became distorted and damaged because of the people's sin. There's a separation, a distance, a lack of intimacy. And though God was sinned against by his bride, he's still coming to pursue his bride. He's coming, as it says in verse 7, with great compassion. And in verse 8, with an everlasting love. He is angered and grieved over the sin of his people. And yet his everlasting love trumps it all. People who are so entangled with sin, God still is so entangled with them and He loves them. Now, historically, this passage has two fulfillments. Okay, so Isaiah prophesied about this in 700 BC. The people of Judah that he's talking to continued to rebel against God, and the consequence for that was they were captured by the Babylonians. Babylonians grabbed them and put them into exile, put them into slavery, and no longer are the people of God living where they should be living in the land, prospering. So Isaiah's writing this in 700 B.C., and he's prophesying about something like in 600 B.C., 100 years later, to where God is going to, out of his love for his people, send a rescuer to free them from Babylonian exile. And he grabs a guy named Cyrus. And Cyrus comes and saves the people of Judah and sends them back home. Wonderful. The beauty of God. But that's only the first fulfillment. The second fulfillment happened about 700 years later. When Jesus Christ hung on a cross to set us free from the exile and enslavement that we had in our sin. Cyrus, who saved Judah from Babylonians, he died. And he never resurrected. And yet Jesus came hundreds of years later to rescue us from our sin because we are no different from Judah. Now, we may not be farmers in the land of Israel. We may not be under Babylonian capture, but we are under the capture of sin, and we rebel, and we anger God. He's a holy God. He has wrath. He opposes our sin. And yet, despite all that, He has sent His servant Jesus to take the anger, take the wrath, Take the punishment so that you and I don't have to live in slavery anymore, but can be set free as children of God. Why? Because he has an everlasting love and compassion on his family. And his love and his compassion can't be moved. And though we are often are not faithful to him, he's always faithful to us. He loves us perfectly. So Jesus is the fulfillment here of this servant that God in his compassion and his love would lay down his life for us and then resurrect, bringing us to new life. And because God is not just holy and sovereign, but also our saving servant, we can trust him all the more. When God looks at you, if you're his child, he looks at you with an everlasting love. He always loves you, no matter what you did this morning, or last week, or last year, if you are his child, he loves you. And that's fixed. And even when you sin, or you go a month without 
praying, even when you fall into that sin again and again. Our God has eyes of love fixed on you. So you can and you should trust that truth no matter how unlovable you feel, how much shame you allow yourself to build up. God loves you and he came to serve you. Now combine point one and two. God is king, sovereign, powerful, holy. Right now he's allowing the right amount of oxygen we need to exist right now in our bodies. Each molecule. He's over everything. And then now we know God loves you. He came to lay his life down for you. Big God, loving God, sovereign God, compassionate God. If you get these two together, think about how that changes your circumstances, how you view your hardships. So if you get cancer, or you lose your job, or your child runs from the faith, Know that not only is God ruling over it, but he's ruling over it with love. Though we ought to hate cancer and that our children go wayward and we lose our jobs, we should hate disappointments in life. But everything that God allows and permits and ordains to happen, he does so out of love for us. And we can never fully comprehend this. But every single thing that passes in our lives as children of God come out of his everlasting heart for us. Romans 8.28, all things work together for the good of those who love him. Every single thing works for good for the children of God. Cancer, wayward children, lost jobs, disappointments. You can trust in God even when you don't know your next move because he's not only sovereign, but he also loves you. A father or mother asks children to do hard things, things they don't want to do. Chores, you know, mowing the grass. A father or mother will discipline their child, send them the time out, give them a spanking, ground them. And from the child's perspective, this is cruel. It's unloving. It's painful. It's unfortunate. But the parent we know is doing these things out of love for their child. Disciplining out of love. Requiring hard work out of love. Having rules because they love them. All things in life that befall us, befall us with the love of God. Even the hard things. The things that stink. There is pain, but with it all is the love of God. Of God, and He can be trusted. So maybe that cancer or that wayward child will actually bring something into your life that you wouldn't have got without it happening. Maybe God is showering you with blessings or loves, and you can't see it yet, but God works all things together for good, even the stinky parts. I mean, look at the life of Jesus. The most good has come from the most terrible tragedy. The most blessed thing we could ever have, salvation and love from God, comes from what? The death of Jesus. A terrible tragedy. God even used the death of His holy Son to display His love to you. God works all things for our good. He loves us so we can trust Him. But what's the alternative? It's either Jesus or it's fate. 
with fate. You know, it's everything's up to chance and there's no love or purpose. And the universe just deals you this hand on this day and the next day or next month gives you this hand. But the problem with fate is it's blind. There's no purpose. There's no care. With just faith, there's no such thing as love. But with God, He ordains all things. Everything is orchestrated with love in mind. It's not blind. God even gives you sometimes the stinky things in life with love in His eyesight. And we can't grasp or comprehend that fully. But He loves you. This portrait of God as King and as a saving servant, but there's one last portrait. God is conqueror. Isaiah wants us to see that the conqueror is victorious. Now the last ten chapters of the book of Isaiah focus on how God's going to make all wrongs right. How he's going to have the new heavens, he's going to have the new earth, and starting in chapter 56, that begins. He conquers enemies, he redeems his people, He does it all. But we see glimmers of that here in our chapter. Look again at verse 11 through 14. Isaiah writes, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of, of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. Isaiah writes to the people of Judah here, speaking to them, saying, I recognize you're under distress. He calls them afflicted ones and those who are storm-tossed by life. He sees their hurt and their pain and anxiety and restlessness, and he points them to a future day where those things won't be here, and they will have an unshaking security. He describes with vivid imagery here that the people of God will be like gates and foundations and walls made of secure and strong stones, that they will not be moved, that no wind or opposition can come inside of the city, that they will be firmly planted in God. And then the words sapphire and agate and carbuncles, those are all ornate, beautiful gems and rocks full of value. So not only is Isaiah communicating, you will be firmly fixed and no storm can make you fall over, but you're actually going to be beautiful and radiant and full of joy with God forever. When the Messiah returns all enemies and sin, the very things that make our world ugly and taint the beauty of God in creation will be wiped away and we will be like these shining gems radiating in the glory of God. Our future is beautiful with God, like precious gems, and these gems will be cemented and concreted into the ground that nothing could ever shake. That is our future. And there will be no pain or threaten or th- anything to threaten us or worry us or keep us up at night. No anxiety, no disappointments. We will no longer be walking around with guilt or shame. We will be walking around in beauty and perfection of God. So if you are a child of God, you are guaranteed final victory 
Because God is the conqueror. Satan, enemies, those who reject God will be conquered and those who've bowed their knee to King Jesus will be saved fully and given their beautiful eternal heritage. So you can and you should trust in God because He does win in the end. He will have the last word. I mean, if you know the ending of something, does it not change how you live? Even if you have seen a suspenseful movie before and you sit down to watch it a second time, you're probably not going to be on the edge of your seat wondering if the good guy wins at the end. You can sit back and relax and rest. Why? Because you know the ending. Friends, this is us. We know the ending. The ending is that God conquers the enemies and he ushers his people into eternal peace. This is your heritage. So trust him as you wait for that day. The cancer will not have the last word. That loss of job will not ruin your life and your future. That child rebelling will not turn the world upside down. God is victorious, and in the end, everything is going to be just fine. Because God is king. He's a loving and saving servant, and he's guiding all of history and existence to the last day where he is victorious and he is the conqueror. And this is our God, and this is the portrait that Isaiah is going to be painting for us the next 10 weeks as we go through all 66 chapters. But overall, what you need to know is that whatever you face in life, God alone is the one to trust in fully, and he will carry, it, carry you through it because God never fails. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your everlasting love is shining upon us, that even in this moment as you are marshalling the stars in the sky, you have your eyes of love fixed upon us at this church, and that you, are, you yourself are excited for that day when you send your Son to fully redeem us and bring us into your kingdom. So Lord, as we go from here, as we face trouble or trials or anxieties, even the mundaneness of life, remind us we can trust in you fully and you will care for us. You are our rock, our firm foundation. In you we trust. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now we'd like to uh, finish our, our service today by singing the doxology together. So do you mind stand and sing with us as we praise this wonderful God?